All right, all right, all right. I'm Tony Miller, and this is the Miller Meets World podcast, where I talk to brave people with inspiring stories and big impact. This episode was brought to you by Melissa Miller of Compass Real Estate. When you are buying or selling a home in Santa Barbara or Montecito, you want Melissa's eye for timeless style and her invaluable ability to negotiate the best deal. Contact Melissa today at 805-570-9511 or compass.com. DRE number 02024187. There is a dark cloud over law enforcement officers right now. Their behavior and methods are under scrutiny, and there are literal instances of police officers being ambushed. The latter point is obviously and unquestionably unacceptable, but the other points are all open for debate, and I want a police officer's perspective on a few things, including how police officers feel about the scrutiny, whether it's deserved or not, and what should be done to improve the relationship between law enforcement and society. So I've asked Southern California law enforcement officer and host of the Squad Room podcast, Garrett Tesla, to be here today. How are you doing? Good, Tony. Thanks for having me on. Did I pronounce your name correctly? <laughs> Tesla, yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think you got it. All right, cool. So before we dive into the main topic, I wanted to hear you tell me about your previous life in the music business. <laughs> so you heard about that. Um, yeah, before I joined uh, law enforcement in 2005, I uh, spent my teenage years uh, being an aspiring musician uh, and then realized that the people who really got paid were the ones hanging out backstage and decided I wanted to go into the music business, the, the business side, and spent some time working uh, in film studios and record labels uh, in my, my uh, late teens, early 20s. Uh, while I was in school and then finishing school and then in New York and then in LA. And uh, that was my career path I, that I thought I was going to do. And I thought I was going to be a, a, one of these famous like Jimmy Iovine or any number of famous uh, A&R guys out there. And I realized uh, a couple of things realized I was really called towards service, especially after 9-11, uh, but also that I wasn't very good at picking the next big thing. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of bands out there that are multi-platinum artists now that I saw in a, a small divey club and thought they'd never go anywhere. So <laughs> I wow. needed to find a new path forward. And, uh, and luckily I, uh, I started, um, uh, kind of with a curious interest in law enforcement, just from the outsider's perspective, wondering how that happens, how people do that, how they go towards those dangers and really got drawn towards it. And here I am 15 years later. So in, in your role in the music industry, did you work with uh, the band 311? It's, uh, that's an, an interesting one for you to pick out specifically. But yeah, uh, I worked for 311 pretty extensively, even starting in high school. And really was actually the first band I worked with. Um, and uh, I was uh, in Denver at the time. They're from Omaha. So they were very big in Denver at the time, and this was before they even blew up into the multi-platinum record sales that they eventually got to. Uh, but yeah, worked with them for several. Yeah. One of my favorite songs that's on my playlist is the song "Amber." Yeah, there's they're they're still uh, they're still high rotation for me uh, even even these days. You know, maybe now as a throwback. But uh, my best friend from high school was from Omaha. Uh, he moved to Denver and 
because Omaha was a small city back then. He knew the band and he came in with one of their demos and he was like, you got to check these guys out. And so uh, I think anytime I hear 311, I think like those early high school years, that nostalgia just kicks in right away. <laughs> well, what an interesting early life and uh, continuing on through adult life. And is it safe to assume that your interest in podcasting is an extension of your interest in audio media? Yeah, when I went to when I went to college, eventually, uh, I had a radio show and I worked at the radio station. I was the like promotions manager, so I I got to know a lot of the record label people by doing that job, and uh, really enjoyed being on air. And I was I did a morning show uh, three days a week and really learned audio and and so you know, you leave college and if you don't pursue that professionally at the time, there was really nothing to do with it other than to go to do that full time. I didn't want to be a DJ. Um, so it sat for a long time. And as podcasts uh, came around and I got into podcasts as a listener, uh, it definitely teased a lot of that creativity and, and, mm-hmm. and interest back out of me. And, you know, the accessibility of podcasts and the equipment and all those things that you can do at home now. Um, yeah, it, it, it totally re-sparked that, uh, that interest for me. Okay. Are police officers and the law enforcement community the target audience of your podcast? And what is the mission of the squad room? So, you know, there's a lot of stress factors and a lot of issues that go into law enforcement that are rather unique to that job, even more, even different than say firefighters who also experience a lot of the organizational stress and a lot of the kind of chronic and acute stressors that we do, but we have our own set and it's as, as akin to the military, I think, as you can get as a comparison. So you have the dangers, you have the personal threats of violence against you, you have the personal uh, experience with violence against other people. And so how you manage those things as you go through your career really de- dictates whether you're successful or not. And I mean, by success, I don't mean promoting up the ranks, but you know, police officers have a much higher... Uh, um, heart attack rate than the general population. We have a much higher suicide rate than the general population. We have a higher divorce right. rate. We have a higher rate of alcoholism. All the, all the things that happen to you when you don't mitigate stress properly, we have higher rates of them. And so I was starting to experience some of those things as a young sergeant and uh, really went on a path to find the answers to those questions for myself. And as I learned those things and then I shared those with other uh, coworkers, I would get the response that I wasn't the only one who was suffering or struggling with something like weight loss or eating right when you're on night shift and your only option is, you know, a 3 a.m. 7-Eleven meal. Uh, so I was encouraged by that and I realized, well, if my partners locally are having these questions then other officers around the world are having these questions and, you know, if I called up some of the amazing experts I've had on my show and asked them to talk to me for an hour, they'd charge me $500, right? <laughs> but if I had a way to help them get their message out uh, via the podcast, I thought, well, maybe I can gain access to some of these people who can help me figure these things out. And that's exactly what's luckily ended up happening. Okay. Establishing the podcast, getting these subject matter experts on to help, help us navigate these challenging times, especially now. And then as the show's gone, it's transitioned not just from nutrition and exercise to mindfulness and meditation. And now uh, my personal 
uh, ethos and my personal uh, interest and passion for leadership in the first responder community. Well, and that, all of that um, is part of what drew me to your podcast. And some of those topics that you're hitting on right now are some things I want to address a little later in, in this show today. I want to I want to ask a few questions. Why does the law enforcement community not support a movement toward more firearm restrictions? It it seems like your job would be safer, not necessarily tomorrow, but in the future if there were fewer firearms in the hands of everyone. Well, let me let me do two things first of all. <clears throat> let me first state very clearly and unequivocally that I am presenting my own opinions here and that my opinions are just from my experience, both as we talked about, but in my own experience in law enforcement, but I'm not representing my agency whatsoever uh, in, in those views. And then also, you know, that's, it's a, that's a really broad question because I can't put a stamp on, on a question like that and say that all law enforcement believes that there should be less, there, there shouldn't be more gun restrictions out there. Right. Uh, I think just like within the general community, you have uh, some perspective, or, or you rather you have a, um, a pendulum that swings in some way, or, or uh, you have a scope where some people are on the, on the side of belief that we should have unfettered access to guns, and there are other officers who believe that there should be more restrictions. And I think that really, realistically, the majority of officers, and I'm just speaking from the people I talk to and that I experience, you know, fall somewhere in the middle. And, you know, we, as a group, I think, emphasize the duality of law enforcement, which is the biggest challenge of law enforcement, which a lot of people kind of miss or don't understand, is that we're sworn to uphold the law and enforce the law, but we're also sworn to uphold the Constitution. And so there's a balancing act between, say, the Second Amendment versus what is the applicable laws of your county or your city or your state. And I just generally, I would say that officers lean towards uh, it's kind of ironic because here we are the agents of the state. But as a group, I think we are the are often the first or the or the quickest to bristle at the idea that the government get involved in more laws. I do find the irony in that. Um, but I think, I think majority of officers understand that there are reasonable things that could be done to mitigate some of these issues. And I think California is a good example. Colorado with uh, the red, uh, red flag laws of at least working towards getting uh, firearms away from people who are presenting yep. an imminent danger to themselves or others. Well, and I didn't want to, and I, I, um, you know, I wasn't exactly sure what you're, position was, but I have had the opportunity to speak with at least one other police officer um, in my podcasting work. And his response was basically that, you know, aside from the fact that, you know, just kind of that whole constitutionality perspective, that's just sort of the position that the stance that he was on. But from a professional standpoint, he sort of laid it out like, we go to every call, we respond to every call as if it's going to be a bad situation, that somebody could be armed and dangerous. So this idea that somehow they feel that they would be less threatened if society had a movement in place towards fewer firearms, 
you know, that just didn't really resonate with him because, you know, he's always on guard. Like every situation could involve a firearm in the hands of the wrong person. I would, I agree with that. And I go a step further and say, there is a firearm at every call you go to yours. So you have to treat, you have to treat every situation as there is a gun involved. We're in a society in our country where there's uh, over 300 million guns out in circulation, right? And so even if today we outlawed gun sales, we still have them floating around. And even if we went so far as to recall and collect everybody's firearms, I, it can be a trite argument at times, but I believe it's true that the only people who are going to turn in their guns are the law-abiding citizens you're not going to have the people that we confront on the job willingly turn over there. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to, it's going to be a long, it's a long road. And I'm really just looking at this from a very, very 30,000 foot view th- thinking like there is so little movement or progress in the way of controlling guns in my lifetime. And it just seems like you can do the research on the internet and see and listen to the news and understand that as a community, the basic stance from law enforcement is not helping that progress. There, there's, they have not supported any progress in, in any way, shape or form as a, as a community. And so I just think, I think it, I didn't mean to, I, I just think it's kind of a funny and ironic kind of thing. Like it, it just seems like the world would be safer and your, your job would be easier if, if there were fewer guns on the street well i i I don't know if that's uh it depends on who you're what community or what organization you might be talking about too in terms of if they're lending support towards this idea of restrictions because if you're talking about police unions or the rank and file the line level people you're probably Mm -hmm. right if you're talking about the professional police chiefs organizations like the iacp and perf and the police foundation and others that are led by the people who run agencies they're on the other side of it and they they're very much pushing towards some sort of at least reasonable restrictions or background checks or the kinds of things that can be done. Yeah. So it's not a, it's, it's not, frankly, I don't think it's fair to lump all police when you talk about all the way from chiefs, all the way down to the brand new rookie. And you talk about from the West coast, all the way to the East coast and the bottom of El Paso, Texas, all the way to Duluth. <laughs> to put it in as in, everybody has one collective cohesive argument for or against anything right that's completely not fair uh, of me to 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 put everybody in one basket 100 percent. and so um i get your point there's some nuance to it there's some different opinions inside the the whole community what did you think when you first heard that phrase defund police uh, i mean that's been that's the catchiest way that it's been phrased or that it's been put out there but that's really been a discussion since at least 2014 after Ferguson. So okay. the concept's not the concept's not terribly new. Um, the idea of dissolving police departments like Minneapolis voted to do, that is new. Uh, and then some of the other things that have come out of that or other cities, uh, Berkeley, for example, um, voting to uh, basically outlaw the PD from doing traffic stops. There are unintended consequences to any decision, pro and con, right? Um, But the idea of defunding police 
Um, what did I think about it? I just, if they're talking about removing our budgets uh, or, or, or reducing our budgets, mm -hmm. that is not necessarily a bad thing if we're moving those things towards uh, or reallocating those things towards uh, problems that we are currently in charge of solving, but that you take off of our plate, right? So the easiest and the most common example is, and this is very nuanced, but mental health treatment. And that's what gets a lot of attention. Uh, and that's the first thing people usually point to is, why are the cops interacting with the mentally ill? And the reason the cops are interacting with the mentally ill is because there's no one else to do it. The 911 system, as it was first designed and as it's been encouraged since then, is you pick up the phone, you have a problem, you call 911, regardless of what that problem is, police or fire are going to come to your scene. If your house is burning or you're in a vehicle accident, fire is going to go. If it's anything else or anything that potentially involves someone who is erratic or violent, it's going to be the police or some combination thereof, right? We never have, there is no one in the country where if you pick up 911, you choose option three and you get a staff psychologist to come to your house. Right. We're slowly transitioning towards at least a co-response in some areas where police, uh, whether psychologists on staff or there are even going out to the scene, a, a counselor might be going out to the scene with the police. Uh, but there are so many things that the police are tasked with doing that are not not law enforcement. And I'll go a step further and say that really, my, my official title is peace officer, right? Mm -hmm. I keep the peace. Right. And so through things like ironically, community policing, which everyone throws up as like the be all end all of policing, I think community policing is a complete failure. It's a it's a it's an absolute disaster. And it's why what, it's well, it's what brought us to where we are now. Community policing the first problem with community policing is there's over 50 definitions of what it is. If you have 50 definitions of what something is, none of them are right, right? And so it's, it's misapplied or it's applied in parts uh, throughout the country in different ways. But one of the things that community policing did was emphasize low-level crime enforcement, disorder crimes like public drinking, uh, public urination, drunk in public, sleeping on the sidewalk, all these little things that are more of like a social disorder crime than like, like a serious event, right? And as police started to respond to those, we noticed that crime took a huge drop. And you look into New York City in the early 90s when this was really first instituted as the idea or a theory called broken windows policing. When the police started dealing with low-level crimes, social disorder crimes, uh, crime, oh, bigger crime, robbery, homicide, rape, etc., those things plummeted because the same people who pass out drunk on the street are the same people who commit those other bigger crimes. So we as an institution learned quickly deal with the small stuff and you ha and that handles the big stuff. And as we expanded that and we expanded what we considered to be social disorders, the, the public really endorsed this idea of us going after those little things in that way. Now I say the public, but really it meant the public that benefits from those things. So we'll go back to New York city with the, the controversy of stop and frisk. Stop and frisk was a, was a policy and in, in a, in a practice, a tactic within NYPD that's really out of community policing where they would stop people who appeared to be suspicious. They would search them and they would oftentimes find guns and drugs. And they had about a 20 to 30 percent success rate in if they stopped someone, they had about a 20 percent chance of finding something on them that would warrant them going to jail. 
right? And a 20% chance rate on, a, on that is really, really good. That's really high. So that means that's a really effective strategy. So what do we do with an effective strategy? We double down on it. We use it again, right? And so what got missed in that 20% effective strategy is the 80% of people who are completely innocent, but continue to get stopped over and over and over. And it creates that coerciveness, uh, that coercive and divisiveness between us and a community that's very important for us. Mm-hmm. The people who weren't getting stopped by NYPD, they had no problems with that policy, you know, because that, that, they saw the crime rates dropping. But we really had that friction with the people that we were interacting with in those environments. You can extrapolate that out to any, any town in USA, and it goes to, um, you know, in the current crisis now, like, the police should not be responding to the fact that your neighbor's sprinkler system is watering onto your yard. But we do. I should not, this happened uh, locally just recently, we, and it happens frequently. We should not be responding, the police should not be responding to a 911 call from a mother whose third grader won't get on their Zoom call to join their class. But that's what happens. Yeah. And because of the system that we have, you call 911, we still go to that call. Now, we may tell the mom, we're not doing that. We're not, I'm not lecturing your third grader about getting on zoom but a response is required so we need to reframe what we expect from police as much as we need to reframe what the police are responsible for yeah that's a great point and so we've established that you know clearly defund police as you stated was you know just the latest sort of way to phrase something that's been talked about for a long time which is basically reallocating resources to better represent um, how police could be trained and and what the needs of the public and police relationship are. So, um, you know, with with that perspective, you know, what does it mean to you, aside from what you've already explained, to sort of how would you see a better way to reallocate resources when you take into account sort of the history of policing, how it's evolved? And, you know, today there seems like to be a very militaristic sort of presence and style. And, you know, we, unfortunately, we see with the proliferation of cameras, you know, we we see the bad instances where there seems to be excessive force and whether it's, you know, physically or even mechanically with just so many shots being fired by so many officers, you know, it, you, you witness it and it feels excessive and there feels, feels like a kind of militaristic um, style to all of it. And, um, I want to hear your perspective on kind of the evolution of all of that. I think you started to talk about it a little bit with the community policing and how to, how that has changed over decades. Well, certainly, you know, the anti-terrorism mandate has brought a lot of that, uh, military culture into policing as has the wars on terror. And so there are lots of benefits to, using what the military has learned. Uh, They come with costs, just like anything else. But a simple example that often people struggle with are, for example, the load-bearing vests that you you originally saw all the way back in Vietnam, but into the modern wars of the infantrymen wearing all that weight up on their chest and carrying all sorts of gear, right? Mm -hmm. Well, they do that because it's easier on the body, on the spine, the back, the knees, and the feet to carry that much gear. And in policing, we have a traditional gun belt right around the waist, right? But that gun belt is, is the cause of countless back injuries, back yeah. surgeries, the kinds of things that cost citizens money on the medical side. 
So an easy thing to learn from the military was if we moved that weight from the hips and on that belt up onto a vest, we resolve a lot of back problems and a lot of knee problems, and we save money because we don't have guys out on injury. Now, that looks like a military thing because that's the association, but it's, a, it's productive. So there are productive right. things that come out of learning from what they have done. There are productive things coming out of the military in terms of like local bomb teams and learning all the tactics that they have used in Iraq and Afghanistan to make their communities safer. There are mm-hmm. tactics that I use uh, as a dive team supervisor to do underwater stuff that is uh, that has brought us to be safer. There are tactics from a SWAT team perspective that, you know, these quote unquote tanks that people worry about, and they're not tanks, but they're armored vehicles, but they're there to protect people and they save lives. Yeah. And I firmly believe that. So there are benefits to those. There are lots of benefits to that, to learning from that. Now, what we do have is a PR problem, obviously. And, one of the things that is challenging is is trying to to trying to teach civilians uh, and I, I don't like the word civilians versus sworn, but just for the sake of this conversation, when I say sworn, I guess I mean you know law enforcement personnel and civilian you could mean someone who's outside of that. But when something happens where someone is shot seemingly either in the back or it seems excessive it's it's really hard for someone who hasn't done the job to understand the dynamic and, and it's our job to describe it as best we can yeah uh, and but but oftentimes those things get described well in court 2 years later during the trial yeah. but they don't get described on twitter within 20 minutes and that's what we're trying that's what we're struggling with is when something happens and and, and immediately even in in ferguson immediately misinformation is out on social media, we are having to pull back from that. Now you have the misinformation is one thing. Now you have real information, but through the lens of, I don't know a better word, so I'll say ignorance of the, either the facts or, or what happened on scene, and people will fill in their own, uh, with, their, with their own beliefs. You know, why don't right. they just shoot him in the leg? Or um, why'd they shoot him in the back? And, and, and they miss simple things like even how much, how long it takes the human eye to react to movement and process that and move it to the brain, which then processes it and moves it to the fingers to tell you to stop shooting. Right. And that, yeah. that circuit takes, um, takes at least a second and a half. Uh, and, and in a second and a half, I can, I can unload seven rounds easily. And so mm-hmm. when you ask, how did he get shot seven times? But from the time the eyes tell you to stop shooting to the time you actually do, as a minimum of about a second and a half. And there's, and there's even, there's even more going on there physiologically, right? Where with like the release of cortisol and just kind of the adrenaline that, that picks up and takes you to a place of fight or flight in a sense. Yeah. So there's, there's, there's a lot of factors and I'm not justifying every shoot with the fact that it takes that long with perception. Mm -hmm. There are bad police shootings. Uh, There are bad police uses of force. Uh, But, um, I do believe that the vast majority of officers, I, I would say I know, I know the, the vast majority of officers go to work every day with the goal to protect their community, to do something of service, and nobody has an interest in, in killing somebody for the sake of 
getting back at them or, or, or just getting their shots and are getting the chance because right. as you see, that's not worth it to anybody other than a psychopath. And my expectation and my hope is that as we continue to improve our hiring practices, that those people don't exist within our ranks. I think what's more likely to happen, and I think what we saw in Minneapolis was a group of officers who, or at least specifically one officer who uh, got hired and was probably a very good cop for a very long time, but the caustic drip of that stress and the interactions with the criminal element constantly started to erode his sense of right and wrong. And what just, what his, what his end result was, was he justified with actions that were inappropriate. Right. So you keep, you keyed in on something there, which, um, you know, when you talk about the reallocating resources, um, it seems clear that focusing on that stress and the mental health and the physical health of officers would be a good use of more resources. And you had um, an expert on your show, um, I believe it was uh, Dr. Kevin Gilmartin, and he's a preeminent police psychologist. And you talked with him about the emotional survival for law enforcement. I think that was the name of his book um, that he wrote a long time ago. And um, I wanted to hear your perspective on um, some of the simple and complex things that he shared with, with you and your audience with regard to treating yourself as an, a law enforcement officer better mentally and physically. Well, it's, it's a, it's the, it's probably the biggest struggle that any officer is going to deal with is how to manage those things because of, regardless of where you are, whether you're in, you know, Seattle or Tallahassee or anywhere in between a small city, a rural County, you're going to deal with things that, um, the vast majority of the public doesn't know mm-hmm. the vast majority of the public will never have to deal with. And then you've got to figure out a way to use it productively. Um, I am of the belief and, and Kevin is too, Dr. Gil Martin, you're going to have trauma in the job. It's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Now it may not affect you in a negative way, but it's going to happen. There, there's no way you can be a, a cop anywhere for more than a couple of days without experiencing trauma you know, as we define it. So some people are able to do productive things and are, and just already have a mindset or an ability or a natural predisposition to not have, have those things affect them. But police officers have a much higher rate of PTSD than even the military. Mm -hmm. And I've had a lot of Navy SEALs, Green Berets, uh, high level operators on my show who've all said, yeah, I couldn't do your job because I knew if I did my six month tour, I got to go home. And when I was home, I was completely safe. And here you go, 15, 20 year career, three, four days a week of constantly being on. And then, you know, it takes, as you go through those three or four days, you mentioned earlier, cortisol, the adrenaline dumps, all those caustic things that happen. The the repetitive nature of that, the repetitive nature of that, the constant ups and downs creates a really unhealthy balance incredibly and there's no you're kind of it's as if you're out surfing and you get pinned under the wave and you just keep getting tossed because 
as you come into your say weekend and you've got three or four days off, it takes three or four days for that stuff to flush out and for you to kind of reset. Mm-hmm. And so by the time you do that, you're right back in it. And, you know, we are trained that you, you got to be professional cynic. And, and that really cynicism is what keeps you safe in this job. Uh, I'm cynical about the fact that the person who's being nice to me, why are they being nice to me? Are they trying to prep, uh, prepare an attack on me? Um, cynical about the guy who's got his hand in his pocket and he won't take it out. When I ask him to, what's he holding in there? Is he holding a gun? Is he holding a knife? I don't know. And those are the things that get repeated into you to, for your safety. The problem is we need to be able to turn it off. And it's not just a mindset issue. It's a, it's a physiological chemical issue well, of activating that parasympathetic nervous system to counteract the sympathetic nervous system. And one of the things he talked about that was s- s- sort of awestruck me was just the simple idea of getting on a treadmill at the end of each um, uh, session, e- end of each, uh, what would you call your daily, your, your job, your shift, at the end of your shift. Uh, just for 30 minutes, just to jog or walk, you know, something that just sort of re-levels out all of your your brain chemistry um, and your fi- your physiological, you know, indicators. Um, so, yeah, talk about that for a second. Well, I mean, that's one of those things. Like, you talk about defunding the police. And to me, it's like we need more funding. If you walk through any police agency, I've never, I've never met a police agency or someone from a police agency who says, no, we got everything we need. We're, you know, we're, we're fully yeah. functional. Everybody's driving around in beat up cars. They're working with, they're maximizing equipment. They're stretched thin and, and training is, it has really been cut. Training is one of the first things you can cut from a police budget, right? And that seems, that seems asinine. It, you know, b- that based on the evidence that we have about what we're talking about right now, it seems like that's what the defunding police should be talking about is reallocating resources to focus more on taking care of the officers mentally and physically. I, I, I would, I would agree. But you know, if you're the administrator of an agency and you can cut response times from three minutes to mm-hmm. eight minutes for, because mm-hmm. of staffing, but then the public blows up your city council and yells and screams that they want police there faster Versus you cut the behind the scenes funding for training, right? You cut the you cut the one that doesn't affect the public directly, and so that's right. what ends up happening. And what we need to really be doing, and the whole point of my show and kind of my mission in life these days, is to help officers get the answers to those questions because they're not going to get them from their agency. There are some agencies out there that are being very proactive with this stuff, but on the whole, we're decades behind the private industries in terms of how we treat our employees, the care time we give them, the, the mental health uh, issues that we're willing to address. And we're our own worst enemy too, you know, mm-hmm. because we do come from a paramilitary organization in terms of structure and chain of command. And uh, uh, we come from a, a, a scenario where you don't want your partners to worry about you and your ability to help save their life. Right. right. And so in those situations, you're not going to get people who are honest about if they're struggling uh, with stuff. So we need to make that OK. We need to make uh, mindfulness training and uh, learning, teaching people how to take care of themselves. That needs to be much more routine and a constant upgrade. Kevin, one of my favorite Kevin's favorite sayings of mine is. No, one of my favorite things of Kevin's is, uh, you know, you're you take a psychological exam when you get hired but that expires after five years. 
because of the job. You, you've, you've worn out that expiration date, you need a new one. And we need to constantly be reevaluating people and helping them and then rehabilitating them right? Uh, so that they can continue their career. Right. At least think that they're going to, if the police think they're going to get uh, thrown under the bus by their command, if they say, I'm struggling, I have a problem, I have PTSD, or I really can't get over that call, and their administrators take away their gun badge ID and put them on a desk and call them crazy, mm-hmm. then no one's going to come forward with that. You know, they, they, there needs to be some, some real strength and leadership at the top about how we handle this. Right, right. It seems um, like if you were to just look at two, two different parallel paths, one is an officer who's consistently, you know, being traumatized and, you know, having um, high cortisol levels and then the adrenaline dump. Um, and then um, at the end of the day, at the end of the shift, just basically checks out and goes home and doesn't have any mental or physical um, support and is, is, you know, not really great with the family. Everything's just sort of festering. And then he starts the whole routine again the next day and then the next day and then the next day versus somebody who at the end of each shift is addressing those those factual you know, chemical balance issues that need to be rebalanced and, you know, also is addressing any potential, you know, mental challenges of, of the job. Um, th- those two parallel paths seem like, you know, one that's just a disaster waiting to happen and the other is, you know, a, a, a really healthy, um, well-balanced peace officer and, and not a warrior. And that's yeah. what you want, right? You want a yeah. well-balanced individual in that in that job who's not sleep-deprived, mm-hmm. who's not maxed out on stress, who's not disconnected, all those things. Yeah. So, um, and I just think it's worth noting, like, to talk about the, the cortisol, because I think that when you get the, the poor PR issue um, because of all the cameras, you know, no one's really... They think you're being trained so well that you should know how to handle all these situations instinctively in a better, less stressful or less um, forceful way. And But I think there's also something going on underneath, again, physiologically with a human in that instance where when you are being put in a threatening circumstance, there are adre- there's adrenaline that is being pumped into your system and your ability to follow whatever training you have, certainly there's certainly an element of that, but there's also an element of just responding, reacting um, as a, you know, as an animal in a threatening condition, right? The fight or flight, fight or flight. Right. But I think training helps with stress inoculation so that you can overcome those things and override those things. I, I can, I always try to take the opportunity to disabuse anybody of the notion that their police officers are extremely well-trained. I don't care where you are. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, that's that, that, that is, uh, that'll, some officers will find that offensive, but I talk to people all the time who think that we get the same training as like seal team six. Yeah. You know, we, we don't, your, your local officers are undertrained. They're not trained consistently enough and routinely enough in things like Brazilian jiu-jitsu or hand-to-hand arrest and control techniques that don't use excessive force. They're not trained enough with their firearms. They're not trained enough in how to talk to people and how to react to mental health crises. I could go on and on and on. And again, 
it's all because of the defunding or the lack of resources that are already given to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I understand as a taxpayer and a citizen myself that law enforcement takes up a huge chunk of city and county budgets, right? Yeah. So I understand that what I'm asking for is unrealistic, but we have to come together somewhere in the middle and figure out that part of this is our fault as citizens because we're not willing to do what it takes to give these men and women the training to be the kind of officers that we want. Now, that'll sound like a cop-out to people, but that is really the, one, of, one of the ways that we solve this. It's not the way, but it's one of the ways that combined with other efforts, we solve this. Yeah. Officers have to, you know, like, again, going back to the SEAL teams, just because, again, I've, I've talked to a bunch of them, if they're getting deployed, they spend a year together in a workup and they train together. They fly all over the country doing, and they, sh they train every day for a year in different environments, different scenarios. They do that stress inoculation and they get cohesive as a team. And then they go out for six months and, in, in theater and then they come home and they do it again. They do another workup. Can you imagine a scenario where the cops that you have on the street just spent a year off the street, all they did was train, and then you put them on the street, you'd have the kind of people that everyone thinks we are right now. Right. But obviously that's not realistic. No agency is that big. No agency has that kind of budget to just train somebody straight for a year. They barely can pay for you to get through the academy. And the academy is just, it's called the basic academy for a reason. It's basic. Yeah. And so it becomes really incumbent on each officer. But now you're talking about a situation where officers, like you said, the treadmill at the end of the day, sounds easy in practice, right? But if you got an officer that just did a 12-hour shift, they've got kids at home, and they need to get home to help, or they've got an hour, oftentimes an hour, hour and a half commute home, and the department won't pay for them to work out on duty, the department doesn't have a gym for them to go to, which is common, that half hour on the treadmill suddenly becomes kind of complicated when you're looking at a rotation where you've got to be up again in six hours, right? Yeah. So, so all of those things kind of inter, inter, interact yeah, you're highlighting, you're really highlighting well how that could be so challenging to, to practice, to have best practices like that. We, it's something we obviously want to aspire to, but you, now you're putting it on the individual officer. And it's like, okay, a lot of officers do a great job accepting responsibility and learning things like jujitsu. They learn and go train with their firearm on their own time and spend their own money doing those things. But for a lot of your listeners who are in other parts of the country, you're talking about officers that make minimum wage. There are full-time peace officers in areas of this country that make as much as you make flipping burgers at McDonald's. And if you got a guy like that or a woman like that, who's trying to do this job well, you, if they're getting paid like that, what do you think their training budget looks like? You know? So it is a perfect storm of a lot of problems that are interactive. It's not, there's no one solution to it. Uh, but it starts with better training. It starts with offloading, a lot of the things that we currently expect our police officers to do. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it also requires that police really work with our other criminal justice partners, probation, parole, the courts, and, and work towards a more holistic approach to uh, the criminal justice system than what we currently have. Okay. Definitely. So we, we've, we've talked about it a little bit. I want to go back to this, this evolution of, police, the sort of the story, the history of police forces, of law enforcement. 
And, you know, you, you talked a few minutes ago, you mentioned um, how, um, you know, the military has provided a lot of um, sort of organizational structure to f- follow um, in law enforcement. So, because clearly law enforcement's gotten so large as an institution across, you know, all of our municipalities and states and nationally that they're at some point they needed a, an organizational structure to follow and military was the place to get that. So there, there's part of that evolution to sort of a military style right now. And I've heard you talk about this. If you go back in time and you sort of look at what policing was like in, in the fifties and sixties, or even maybe even before that, and, and go all the way to today, I've heard you really put together kind of a timeline that, that, that shares the evolution. That's a very interesting perspective, or it's not a it's a, it's a historical perspective that that you have a really um, good hold of that I'd like like you to share. So um, yeah, I did that in a almost two hour long episode. So I'll try and do it in yeah, a c- condense it, condense it. <laughs> I mean, you know, up through the eighteen hundreds into the nineteen twenties and late late nineteen twenties there was no such thing as proactive policing, right? It, like the idea of a policeman actively looking to suppress crime didn't exist. We responded to a crime that was occurring or had occurred. We take the report. And, and even in the 1800s, there weren't police detectives. You would hire your own police detective, usually through the famous like Pinkerton detective agency yeah. of like the Wyatt Earp, you know, movies. You would hire them as an individual person to solve your crime. So it wasn't until the really 1930s where this idea of professional reformed policing would, could come in where the police was a professional and they would go out, try to suppress crime, investigate crime, and, and do that. So it was in the 30s where we started doing those sorts of things. And, um, you know, as that reform model sort of took, took place, that's when the 911 system in the began to evolve and you originally in the 30s and 40s had that beat officer right but kind of going back to the what everyone's idea everyone's idea of community policing is is almost always if you ask anyone what's community policing they think the a cop walking walking the beat and and that's like about the only that's about the only description anyone ever has of it and uh, and you know knowing the streets and knowing the the citizens and knowing the business owners and there's a lot of value to that and, and that's kind of how we took this originally, the beat cop, the guy who would walk the street. As technology advanced, as cars became more common and then cops were put into cars and then the radios, and we went from being a resource in the neighborhood to being a response unit. So the cop who's in the car, now he's not, in, now he's not on the street corner. And if you're in the car, you're no longer really conversing with the public. And if you have the radio and the 911 system, the expectation is now that you're responding to a call for service, not proactively interacting with the community. So 40s, 50s, into 60s, 911 system, police are in cars. Now the emphasis is on how fast can you get there? Uh, Can we investigate, you know, what do we do to detect the crime or to solve the crime rather? And then what are we doing to uh, suppress the crime. And that's, that brings us up to broken windows that I was talking about earlier in the early 90s. Suppressing crime involves uh, uh, resolving the small crimes and you solve the big crimes. So we solve a bunch of the big crimes. Well, people 
aren't appreciative of that kind of approach, unintended uh, result of the and the tactics that are used within community policing. And we get into kind of where we're at today. We're actually into the like early 2000s, late 1990s, where that's when the community policing push really starts to take hold. They want to go back to that idea of a beat officer outside of the car, getting to know people. Um, and that, again, kind of creates a lot of these problems that we saw for the last 20 years. And now we're somewhere in between. You know, we, we still have this system of 911 where we're expected to respond to calls. That's our primary duty. Mm -hmm. uh, the metrics, metrics used to judge how effective officers are are often response times and, and stuff like that. And as an organization or as an as a institution, we need to find better metrics to, to, judge, to gauge how we judge our officers. Right. How effective are they in communication? How, how much additional training are they willing to go through? Or what are the situations they've resolved that aren't an arrest? You know, that saying what's, what, what's measurable gets measured or what gets measured gets managed. You can measure response times, number of citations, number of arrests, and that's about it. Right. And if those are the three so, metrics you use to judge your officers, you're really missing so much of the job that needs to be emphasized. Right. So you've, you've described that, that history um, from uh, the beat cop to, um, you know, the, the, the teams that are in cars responding to basically everything. That's the expectation is that anything that's a problem, police will respond to it. So it's become a, a gigantic um, responsibility. And, um, you've also talked about responsibility of officers. So when, when, you know, w when there are bad, when there is bad behavior and when there is, um, when the guys get caught, you know, just doing the wrong thing, um, th there's a certain amount of responsibility that needs to be taken. And you've also talked about that. Um, can you share your thoughts on, on, on responsibility? Yeah, I think, I, I don't think I'm anywhere out of line with what I would say most any officer will tell you is that there's no place in our job for bad cops. And a good cop wants a bad cop out of the job as much as anybody else. They, they only hurt us. Nobody wants the partner that is the ticking time bomb. They're out there, but, and, and we need to find ways to improve how we vet and then remove those people from the system. But when something like, when something happens like again, Minneapolis or <clears throat> uh, some of the other examples of, of just legitimately bad shootings, not open for interpretation, not five months later, we learned some new facts, but like legitimately you look at it, you know, that's a bad police use of force. That's a bad officer. That's a corrupt officer. The officer's stealing, whatever it is. We don't want those people either they hurt us because then the next time i go to a call that person's wondering if i am good or bad if i'm legitimate or not and there's there's no value to having those people around uh agencies also need to take responsibility for that and that's where they again the training kind of comes in take responsibility for the fact that it's their obligation to make sure that they're hiring the right people um and then of course personal responsibility comes to me as an individual officer to be able to go to my managers or my supervisors and say, Hey, uh, officer, so-and-so is I'm concerned about him 
or this wasn't right. This didn't, or this didn't happen correctly. And then it's incumbent upon the agencies to investigate it, you know, and, and determine what needs to be done, but it needs to be dealt with. And you have, when you have as many lo- agencies out there in the United States as you do, again, because, you know, you think every, ca- every county has at least one law enforcement entity. Every city does. Every state does. We're talking dozens and dozens of, uh, you know, over a, probably a, close to, I think it's close to 100,000 different agencies. How responsive they're going to be could be anywhere on that spectrum and we need to we need to um you know you're never going to get a national standard i think for a lot of things but that's certainly something we need to work towards right uh, in those in those areas of officer discipline and officer hiring well clearly there are states um that are taking initiative for some sort of police reform that i'm sure is being addressed at a level that you're talking about in one way shape or form um but isn't you know from your perspective, for your viewpoint, do you see enough happening? Um, are there any sort of quick, uh, real-world examples of, of really positive change that you see happening that is going to lead to a, a better scenario for all? You mean stuff that's like already in progress? Yeah. Well, yeah. Or, or, or even things that are being planned, reform plans. You know, policy that's coming down the pipeline. I have, I, not to be uh, pessimistic, but I have not seen something yet that I thought is actually viable or okay. works. I, I guess maybe the one caveat to that is that more agencies are starting to look at crisis intervention training for their officers to deal with mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. That alone won't solve anything, though. The idea of the idea of responding a counselor to a scene, I think any again, lack of a better term, quote unquote normal person would think that that sounds reasonable. You send someone who's trained in mental health crisis to the scene of a mental health crisis. The problem with a mental health crisis that any cop will tell you is that that mental health crisis probably coexists with a violent tendency. So your mental health crisis might also be chasing his family around the house with a butcher knife. You can't send a counselor into that alone. You have to send law enforcement to protect them first mm-hmm. and then there's people who said well arm the law arm the arm the social worker like well that, now you're just talking about a police officer <laughs> so so that nuance and those unintended consequences really have to be well thought out uh I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll resolve things i think i think the way to the way to look is is especially in mental health treatment addiction treatment <clears throat> using courts to be using the power of courts towards coercive treatment, meaning court-mandated treatment, court-mandated mental health treatment or drug treatment, those things work far better than private rehabilitation, for example. Um, But getting creative, just putting people behind bars isn't going to solve it. But if maybe we can look towards, towards healing people and take on an approach that, you know, we need to, I've said this before, we need to solve for the pain. We're solving for the crime right now. We're solving for, you know, so-and-so did this, so they go to jail. And say, well, wait a minute. Why did they do that in the first place? We need to be able to dig into the history of people and work towards resolving the internal pain that provokes 
a criminal act because I've never been to a scene, I've never been to a crime, all the way from, from homicide to, uh, your, again, using that example, uh, someone's, uh, your neighbor's water is running, your sprinkler system is running under your lawn. Any one of those things involves some element of personal pain. And so we don't address that. You know, we don't address the personal pain of drug addiction uh, as a society, not just us, right? And, and that means that we really need our partners in the civilian world to step up and be willing to look at people as, you know, look at the convicts, look at the accused, look at the innocent, look at the, all of them, but, re, but, but be determined to figure out how we can solve this person's pain. That is the way I see us moving forward. That is so, I, I'm working to figure it out, at least in my own head. Um, but that is the way, that is the only way I see us resolving any of this is that we work towards solving the pain, not solving the crime. Well said. Well, you're also doing a lot to do, you're doing your part to help. And you're also outlining some helpful, um, things with regard to everyone taking everyone, meaning agencies, organizations, and people taking responsibility. So personal organizational responsibility for making these improvements and um just such a great way to end just talking about you know trauma and how if trauma is left untreated um that it just repeats the cycle and that that every criminal um who almost every criminal has had some sort of trauma that is the seed that kind of created that criminal behavior. And um, our, our criminal justice system is not addressing that at all. And the prisons are full of people um, where that's not being addressed. And there actually is um, some programming that's, that's up and coming right now. And there was one of my episodes earlier was with the, uh, the filmmakers behind the movie, The Prison Within, that showed at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival and um, that's available on Amazon right now, The Prison Within. And um, Catherine Hervey was the director, uh, Troy Williams, Michael Anthony, and uh, Sam. I forget Sam's last name right now. I got to interview all of them. They were all in San Quentin Prison um, for life sentences. Um, and they had all either committed murder or um, were uh, something similar to that. And they're all out today. And they were all part of the um, Insight Prison Project, where that is exactly what they did, was dealt with the trauma um, that created the, the criminal behavior. And um, that, that program still lives today, and that's what this movie is about. And, and so that is a great thing that needs to be promoted in more and more prisons. Garrett Tesla is a Southern California law enforcement officer, and he is the host and, and the creator of the Squad Room podcast. Uh, you, you've got to check it out um, because we we love our police officers. We love our law enforcement community. We want to support them. We want to see them uh, treated better, and we want to see th their, um, their development move in a better direction. And Garrett is doing his part to, to help make that happen. So check that out. And Garrett, thanks so much for being willing to uh, to talk about all this today. No, thanks for having me. Enjoy the discussion. All right. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to the show. I'd like to share my stories with more people. Please take a minute and go to MillerMeetsWorld.com and sign up for the newsletter. Follow me on social media. And also, most importantly, please go to wherever you listen to your podcasts and subscribe to the show. 